0: So, I um, am preaching through the book of 2 Corinthians now. Uh, We had uh, a little break there in the middle of Exodus, between Exodus and 2 Corinthians, of talking about what are our next steps as we walk with God, what are our next steps. And there was a few messages there. But now we're in 2 Corinthians, going verse by verse. This is a third message. So if you're just joining us, you didn't miss much, you can go on our YouTube channel, Facebook, you can see past messages if you'd like. But I remind you a few weeks ago that when... Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot of the letters to the churches that were in these cities that um, were in the first century. And he wrote to this church um, because he had spent 18 months there ministering there. In fact, he started this church there. That was Paul. That was his mission mindset. He was going to go plant churches where the gospel had never been preached before. And so he was in Corinth. He planted the church. God told him to stay there. I'm gonna, I have many people here, and so he started this church. Well, he stayed there for a while, but then as we see in the first letter, 1 Corinthians, if you open your Bible and you'll see 1 Corinthians. By the way, if you'd like a free Bible, those blue Bibles in the chairs in front of you are free. You can take them home if you'd like one. Our gift to you. So 1 Corinthians is a letter that is pretty critical. I talked about that a couple weeks ago. It's like this church was not healthy. They had a lot of problems in the church. And so Paul wrote a letter to them. But now as we read in 2 Corinthians, you might think, hey, that's the second letter Paul wrote, right? I mean, makes sense. But as it turns out, when you read 2 Corinthians, you realize that there was another letter in between that perhaps was even harsher than the first letter. And one would wonder, why isn't it in the Bible? Why don't we have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and 3 Corinthians? Well, there probably a couple of reasons that it might not be in there. Number one, it might have gotten lost. Uh, or it might have um, actually not been considered to be inspired by God. Remember, the Bible that we have today is considered to be inspired by God. God moved the men who moved the pen. The Holy Spirit inside of them and the apostles and, and the, all those afterwards determined that those um, were written by God. So maybe that was the reason. But in that letter that we don't have, Paul said he planned to visit them again. But then he changed his mind about visiting them. But he had a good reason for it. They expected him to come, and so they were mad at Paul. Because he didn't come. He said he was going to come, but he didn't show up. So now he's writing this letter, which we have as 2 Corinthians. And in the letter he's explaining why. Why didn't I go see them? In essence, he's clearing his conscience which is why I titled this message, Clearing Your Conscience. Would you like a clear conscience? If, I say, if you say, yeah, yeah, I want a clear conscience, one might ask, what did you do wrong? <laughs> but I don't want to know, maybe. <laughs> I heard a story about a father who took his son to go steal a pumpkin. They were on a mission. And uh, they went to the, the, fa- uh, the farmer's field where the pumpkins were, and it was in the cover of darkness at night, and They went into this field, and the father said, Son, you you stay here by the fence, and you you look out. Make sure no one is coming. If anybody comes, yell, and and we'll get out of here. And so the father looked around the the, the patch and found the perfect pumpkin that he wanted to steal. But before he took it, he looked around, like many of us do when we're about to do something wrong. We looked around. And the son saw this, and he yelled, Hey, Dad, did you look up? We may be able to hide our sins from others, but we can never hide them from our Father in heaven because he sees all things and he knows all things. Therefore, we must clear our conscience. In fact, the Apostle Paul always talked about clearing your conscience, clearing his own conscience. I don't know if you realized it or not, but several places in the Bible in Acts, Paul says, I I always take pains to have a clear conscience before men and God. He wrote to Timothy, who he mentored. He said, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. And then in his second letter, he says, uh, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. In fact, there was one incident where Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and he really wanted them to have a clear conscience about the meat that they ate. So if you, belong, if you come to Wednesday night Bible study, I'm teaching through the book of Revelation. Some of us would love to know, what is this book of Revelation all about? We might be afraid to read it. Don't be afraid. Just come on Wednesday. We're going through it. But we learned on, uh, through the book of Revelation, through the seven churches that are in Revelation, that uh, what life was like in the first century, in those cities. And Corinthian was not much different. They had to deal with this issue of, if you wanted to go out to dinner, you probably went to the local temple restaurant, and you probably had a nice ribeye steak dinner. Right, Bill? That's your favorite, ribeye steak. You wanted a nice steak dinner, but you might eat this dinner, this steak, and you might realize that later on that the cow was sacrificed to uh, an idol, to to a god, a false god, like maybe the sex god, the Greek sex god Aphrodite. That's what they did back then. They made They sacrificed animals to false gods, to their gods. And this would, of course, cause you as a Christian, perhaps, to have a guilty conscience. Oh my gosh, I just ate a steak that was sacrificed to a sex god. Right? Like, that's a guilty conscience. And so Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 8.13. I put this on the screen so you see it. This is the heart of Paul. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul would rather become a vegetarian than have you or have a Christian have a guilty conscience. What a great example Paul has for us, isn't it? I love it. Hebrews 13, 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I'm going to pray for you. Father, may our hearts be cleared because of your great love for us. May we see in this message the seriousness of our sin, but also how to clear our conscience even when we have not sinned. May you show us through your message. May it be clear to us. And as John the Baptist said, may I decrease and you increase. Amen. I feel like this message will hit everyone a little differently. That's what the Holy Spirit does when you preach his word. Um, I'm not here to entertain you, I'm not here to tell jokes, I'm here to preach the Word of God verse by verse, and I think when you do that, the Spirit does hit us a little differently. How many of you have ever been hit upside the head like a two-by-four by by God, by the Holy Spirit? Yes. It might happen today. Uh, How many of you have felt just wonderfully comforted by God's Word? It does that too. And so I don't know how it will hit you today, but uh, be prepared, I guess. Um, if you have a guilty conscience for a sin, um, as I taught through communion, we mess, uh, when we, when we uh, mess up, we fess up. And God's perpetual forgiveness cleans us up, because there is no limit to God's forgiveness by the blood of Jesus, right? You keep going to God, and you keep asking for forgiveness, and he keeps forgiving. I mean, that's his grace and mercy. He wants us to clear our conscience. But what if you really haven't sinned? What if you've done nothing wrong, but you're accused of doing something wrong? That's Paul's situation here in 2 Corinthians. That's what's going on. Has that ever happened to anybody? You've been accused of doing something you didn't do. Yeah, all of us probably, right? So I think it's really important to see how Paul handles this situation. You've been accused of something, you didn't do it, but you want to clear your conscience and you want to do it in a godly way. How do you do that? Because honestly, most of us When we get a little bit of our uh, ego and our pride involved because somebody accused us of something and we didn't do it, most of us want to prove that we are right and they are wrong. Amen? Yeah. I'll show them, right? Paul doesn't do that at all. In fact, in this example, he is interested in a win-win. I'm going to clear my conscience and I'm going to build you up, Christians, in Corinth, which is awesome. It's a win-win. It's not, I'm right and you're wrong. So here we go, three verses only today. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. For our boast is this, Paul says, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, with holiness, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And we did it supremely to you. We are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you'll fully get it. Just as you partially understood us. But that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. That's the win-win Paul was talking about. We want to boast of you as you boast of us. Now don't get the wrong idea. Boasting is sometimes considered to be a wrong action as a Christian. But here, the word boast implies the act of glorying. In other words, giving God the glory through our actions. When Christians praise one another, that glorifies God's name. But when Christians fight one another, that profanes his name. So we don't want to do that. We want to boast about each other. Why did Paul want to come back to Corinth? We see in verse 15 and 16. He says, I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so you might have a second experience of grace. Paul had many spiritual gifts that he wanted to and give them, just like he, talked the same, he said the same thing to the Roman church in the book of Romans. He said, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. I'll come back to you from Macedonia, and then I'll have you send me on my way to Judea. So Paul was so interested in strengthening this church with a spiritual gift, encouraging them to live out the Great Commission to go and make disciples. But why did he delay? Why did he not go? Was Paul being wishy-washy? Verse 17, Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Paul was not a teenager who changes plans by the minute. You may have one in your house. You may have been one recently. But they changed plans like that. Paul wasn't like that. Verse 23, he says, I call God to witness against me it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. More specifically, verse 1 of chapter 2, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Why would it be painful? Well, if you read 1 Corinthians, you know that there were some people in the church, in the church, that were doing some things that were horrible. Things that even the outside world would say, Oh my gosh! You're doing that, and you're a Christian? It was bad. It was sexual immorality. And there were other problems in the church. And Paul thought by now, they should have repented. But they didn't, and he didn't want to make another visit. He says in verse 3, I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. He so wanted to rejoice. All right, brother, you repented. You're back on the right track. But no, they weren't. Some Christians had not done that. In verse 4, you, hear, you see Paul's heart. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears. I don't want to cause you pain, but I just wanted you to know the abundant love I have for you. So Paul had a clear conscience because of his reasoning for changing his plans. He knew if he would have went back, it just would have been very painful for him and for them. He loved them and he wanted good for them. So he expected that they would have repented, gotten their life in order, and likewise, they had expectations. They expected Paul to be a man of his word. They expected their their first pastor to be a man of his word, to be there when he said he was going to be there, and he wasn't. So, this leads us to expectations. Because I think that is the reason for the guilty conscience or the conscience that we have. Everyone understands expectations. Not everybody loves them. For example, children are expected to honor their parents, play nice, eat the vegetables, clean the room. They understand them, but they don't necessarily love them. Isn't that right? Little ones that are in the audience. Teens are expected to do their homework and finish their chores and obey their curfew. They understand them, but they don't love them. Adults are expected to, hold on, cook the meals, clean the house, wash the clothes, cut the grass, shovel the snow, shop for food, pay for food, go to work, text you the kids, and on and on and on and on and on and on. Amen? Yes. And if you're a leader, you have more expectations that are on you. And if you don't meet the expectations, that's when you get a guilty conscience. Just a thought, what brings you more personal guilt, the unmet expectations that you put on yourself, or that others put on you? You know you, you know where those expectations come from. But more importantly, this is what I'm getting at, is are you able to determine which expectations are good, healthy, and which ones are unrealistic, unreasonable, because if you can't determine the difference between a realistic expectation and an unrealistic one, then you're never going to clear your conscience. You're always going to feel guilty. Whether you did it to yourself or somebody's doing it to you, you're always going to let someone down. And that's not a really great way to live, the, live your life, is it? Nobody wants to live with a guilty conscience all the time because I just can't fulfill these expectations that either I have of myself or people have of me. Amen? Amen? You don't want to live like that, do you? You want an answer. So how do you do that? How do you identify? How do you deal with unrealistic expectations? I'm going to give you an example in a minute here. Um, But I want to just ask one more question that you should always ask yourself. Why? Why do I put all these expectations on myself? Or why do I allow others to put these expectations on me? Because when you get to the why, that's when the healing begins. You really do need to get to the why. I, like Paul, want to help you. Um, I don't want to prove right now that I'm right and you're wrong. And my example has to do with the expectations you have of pastors, of ministry leaders, and then of Christians, you. So it's going to be both sides of the coin here. Um, I talk with pastors all the time about their their church's expectations. Um, And... uh, I think I know some of the expectations you have for me. The question that I always ask is, are they reasonable or unreasonable? And I want to cover this topic, not because it's fun (laughs) sometimes, but it's because I teach the Bible verse by verse, and when the topic comes up, you teach it. I don't get to pick and choose the fun stuff like some churches do. I'm teaching the word verse at it one verse at a time and this is what's brought up so i hope and pray that i get to boast about you and you get to boast about me that's the goal i'm win, i'm going for the win win i think it's possible so what are reasonable expectations for me your pastor for the elders in this church for the deacons in this church for other ministry leaders what should you expect from us number 1 character i mean it's right in 1st timothy 3 a pastor An elder should have character, and there's a whole bunch of character qualifications you can look up for yourself. I think it applies to all ministry leaders, but my favorite is in 1 Peter 5, where he talks about humility. How terrible it is to have a leader that lords over you. You need a humble, uh, the character is humble, being humble. You should expect me and other ministry leaders to always be humble. Second is Calling. This isn't a job, this is a calling. A calling to serve the Lord and serve his people. And you should expect Godly leaders to serve the Lord, not their bank account or their ego. Sad when ministry leaders are in it for that particular reason. Colossians 3 tells us, whatever you do, it's one of my favorite verses, because it shows how we are to work for the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward, you're serving the Lord Christ. So you should expect leaders to be called by God and serve with excellence for the Lord and then for you. Thirdly, you should expect ministry leaders to equip the saints. We've talked about this more than once. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. God gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You're the saints for building up the body of Christ. You shouldn't expect ministry leaders to do all the work. You should expect us to equip you to do the work. We're called to serve, and so are you, because every member is a minister. So the expectations are, I think, as simple as godly character and being humble and serving the Lord with excellence, equipping you to do the work and committing faithfully to what we've been called to do and so whenever i hear grumbling in the pasture you know shepherds have pretty good ears pastors are shepherds and when the sheep grumble in the open fields we can hear those grumblings um, when i've heard complaints over the years honestly it's no different than any other pastor hears in any church when there's complaining going on um, He should be at every event, you know. He should make every hospital visit. He should be more like our old pastor. He should be more like the pastor of that other church. He should fulfill every job responsibility that we said on the the responsibility when we hired him. By the way, I I sometimes laugh uh, at job responsibilities for some churches that they have for their pastors. Lord have mercy, ten pastors could not do what they expect one guy to do. So, when I hear about unmet expectations, um, which is often, uh, which isn't often, (laughs) I should say, uh, I am very thankful to say that. Um, And I'm talking about grumblings over the 17 years of me being a pastor. Every once in a while I get a complaint, and I hear it. I fight my desire, and this is the part that you want to tune into, because this is how you should respond. I fight my desire to get defensive. I think it's in our nature our sinful nature to automatically say, not guilty, when accused of something. Right? I mean, I always go back to the little kid with chocolate all over his face. Did you eat the chocolate chip cookie? No. No, I didn't do it. It's our nature. We say, no, it's not me. I'm not guilty. So I fight that, and I honestly evaluate my actions in respect to the expectation. I talk with other ministry leaders. I I get wise counsel, and I respond accordingly. If it's realistic... I pray for wisdom and discernment for me to implement it in my life. If it's unrealistic, I pray for wisdom and discernment for the other person to realize what they're expecting. And I keep on doing what God has called me to do. So now let's talk about you as a Christian. What are reasonable expectations for you as a Christian? Really not much different. Expect, God expects you to have character, be humble, serve Him with excellence, commit faithfully, and keep being equipped to do the work. Walk with him one step at a time. Renew your mind, as, as we talk about in Romans 12, 2, so God can transform you. And if you don't believe me, um, you can just ask Jesus. What would Jesus say to you if you had that question for him today? Jesus, what do you expect me to do? I want to follow you, on to be a Christian. What do you expect from me? What do you think Jesus would say? Don't even think about it. I'm going to tell you what he would say. It's in Luke 9.23. This is what Jesus would say to you if you're seriously thinking about becoming a follower of Christ. Luke 9.23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now one of my favorite books I've ever read, called Not a Fan. It's called Not a Fan. Points out that this verse is the all-in mentality that God desires from us, and he believes it's realistic. This is realistic. Unfortunately, many Christians consider this call, and let's leave that verse up there for a little while, they consider this call from Jesus as radical, too radical, too, too unrealistic, unreasonable. It's impossible to do this. But why do you suppose that is? I had a, personally I think it's because what Jesus says in this verse is a lifestyle, isn't it? It's not something you can do on Sunday. I mean, literally it says, pick up your cross daily. So it's not something you can fulfill on Sunday by going to church. It's a lifestyle, right? Like, following Jesus is a lifestyle. And when you look at the two things that it talks about, come after me, deny yourself, and pick up your cross, which I taught recently was about suffering. You're literally suffering for the name of Jesus. Well, that's just, that goes against the American, that's the exact opposite of the American lifestyle, isn't it? If you think about it. I mean, Americans, we don't deny ourselves anything, and we don't want to suffer, ever. I mean, we've been ingrained with this life, um, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So this is, which... And I don't say that that's a bad thing because it had good intentions. But when you look at the flip side of it, what, what, when the evil comes out of that is, it becomes selfishness and greed, doesn't it? Like if you have this, oh, it's all about me, my happiness, that's selfishness and greediness. And then we apply that to the two most precious commodities that we have, which are time and money. And we look at that and we say, hmm, Jesus is saying that everything is God's. And we're saying, and we've been raised this way in America, to say it's all ours. So now we have a really we have a big dilemma, don't we? How, do we? how do we fix this problem? How do we deal with this? Well, God has a way of dealing with it. He calls it first fruits. Throughout the Bible, there's a teaching... On first fruits, God calls us to give him first fruits. Now here's the understanding of first fruits. God created everything. God created the air you just breathed in. God gives you the time that you have. God gives you the money that you have, those two wonderful commodities. Do you look at them as from Him? And then do you give him? Your best and your first. That's the principle of first fruits. It's throughout the Bible. In fact, if you're a Christian, James says of of his own, will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we, Christians, should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, as a Christian, you're a first fruit, which should make you feel really special. So if you give God first fruits, if you get this, if you've been living by the principle of first fruits, God, everything I have comes from you. I'm giving you the best of my time. I'm giving you the best, uh, uh, the first and best of my um, income that I have. Those two, wonder, those two um, important commodities. If you've been doing that, then you are blessed. You know that you have a reward, don't you? You know it's bigger than, than anything else. You get that if you've been living by this first fruits principle. But if you don't give God first fruits, if you see time and money as yours, it's not a gift from God. I would venture to say this is probably true. You never have enough time. You never have enough money, and you never will. And I know that's a hard truth. And I hope if it's your first time here, you come back again because I know this is tough. But this is truth, man. This is really what what God teaches and wants you to know. I don't say it to make you feel guilty. I say it because I want you to clear your conscience. If you've been convicted, praise God. That's the Spirit convicting you. That's not me. That's God saying to you, hey, listen. First fruits, it's a big deal to me. I want you to see everything comes from me, and I want you to have a win-win. I want you to boast of your church, and I want you to boast to the Christians that you know. I want, I want to get the glory. So the principle of first fruits, don't run from it. Don't run from it. Everything we have is the gift from God, and that's the Luke 9.23 lifestyle, which is hard, but yet, at the same token, when you do it, it's wonderful. But what's unrealistic as a Christian? What's unrealistic? Because to me, that's what's realistic. I think what Jesus says to us is realistic. And I think living by first fruits is realistic. And I think it's very rewarding when you do it. I mean, I won't even get into you know, the specific example Malachi gives, where, he, where it's the one time we get to test God. And he says, if, if you would give the way that I've taught you to give, won't I pour out the blessings on you? I mean, that's what it says. That's what he says. But what's unrealistic? I think it's unrealistic. I turned off my mic, I think. Let's back up. What's unrealistic? Trying to go to every event, trying to belong to every Bible study, comparing yourself to what other Christians do. Boy, that might sting. If another Christian puts something on you, you know, you should do this. You you should be here. You should do that. Remember what I do. I fight my desire to get defensive. I evaluate my current actions. I get with wise counsel. I respond accordingly. If it really is a realistic thing that I pray about, wisdom, discernment, put it in my life. If it's unrealistic, I pray for wisdom and discernment and for them to leave me alone. (laughs) And honestly, we have a lot of new Christians at Life of Purpose, which is very exciting. What God is doing here is so much bigger than all of us. It's so wonderful to see how God is moving in people's lives, and people are coming to Christ, people are getting baptized, people are getting counsel, people are growing in grace and knowledge. It's so amazing. And, And it's like, when you get excited about the Lord and when you're on fire for God, it's like you want to know what do I do now? What's next? Like, what you know, and it's like, I'm not gonna give you a cookie-cutter answer to that. But I give you five steps. You know, I, I teach five classes, step one through five. Step one is next Saturday, step two is the Saturday after that. And and it's basic stuff: information plus application equals transformation. I give you the information, but you've got to apply it in your life, and God will transform you. But that's just the beginning. You've got to keep walking. 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed in the same image of our Lord Jesus. For this is the work of the Lord. This is the Spirit. So are you growing in the Lord? Fantastic. Are you giving Him your very best? Praise God. Keep up the good work. And walk with a clear conscience. Don't let what other people say you should be doing, don't don't listen to that. Focus on what God has called you to do. Clear your conscience. Walk with a clear conscience so we can boast together. Amen? All right. We're going to pray. This is your time to, to confess anything. If if there's something you want to confess uh, as you pray to the Lord silently, our team is up singing our final song, and I just want to invite you to just take this time to worship, continue worshiping, and um, let me pray. Father, may your word, as it has convicted us, as I said, Lord, it may hit us in different ways, but Lord, I pray for a clear conscience for all of us. I pray, Lord, that your spirit will do its work in us. Not only does it convict us, but it comforts us. And God, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that you love us that much. That you're our judge. But you also also have a way of saving us and forgiving us. And you love us. I praise you, Lord, for today, for your word. And I praise you for this church and all you're doing in our midst. May we be faithful to what you've given us, Lord. May we listen to your call to step up. You've called us to lead. May we keep growing as you've called us to do. Should we, as we seek to be holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name. And the church said,